0: got some great news. It is now possible to get your premium subscription via PayPal or your credit card. The premium subscription allows you to access all episodes of Brain Science, including about six years of content recorded before 2013 and all episode transcripts. A great way to access premium and free content is through the free Brain Science mobile app, which is available for iOS, Android, and Windows Phone. You'll find it in your favorite app store. To learn more about premium, go to brainsciencepodcast.com. Welcome to Brain Science, the show for everyone who has a brain. I'm your host, Dr. Ginger Campbell, and this is episode 139. Ever since I launched Brain Science back in 2006, My goal has been to explore how recent discoveries in neuroscience are helping unravel the mystery of how our brains make us human. I'm really excited about today's interview because in some ways it takes us back to the beginning. My guest today is Jeff Hawkins, author of On Intelligence and founder of Numenta, a company that is dedicated to discovering how the human cortex works. Jeff's book actually inspired the first Brain Science Podcast, and I interviewed him way back in episode 38. Today, he gives us an update on the last 15 years of his research. As always, episode show notes and transcripts are available at brainsciencepodcast.com. You can send me feedback at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com or feedback via SpeakPipe at speakpipe.com forward slash Doc Artemis. I will be back after the interview to review the key ideas and to share a few brief announcements, including a look forward to next month's episode. (music) Jeff, it is great to have you back on Brain
1: Science. It's great to be back, Ginger. I always enjoy talking to you.
0: It's actually been over nine years since we last talked. So I thought we would start by asking you to just give my audience a little bit of background. And I'd like you to start by telling us just a little bit about your career before Numenta.
1: Yeah, sure. I, ha- I have a sort of a ABA career, you might call it. When I got out of college, I fell in love with brains and I decided that this is what I was going to do for, my, for life. I wanted to be a theoretical neuroscientist. Uh, I want to understand theories of the neocortex and try to understand how the brain works. And I w- became a graduate student at Berkeley in the late 80s or mid-80s. And I found out that at the time you really couldn't be a theoretician. You had to be an experimentalist. And I didn't really want to be an experimentalist. I really wanted to be focusing on theory. And so I put my plans on hold. I thought it would be for about four years to go back and work in the computing industry, uh, which I had done work in before. And so I did do all that. And I went back and it, it took me a lot. I was back for more than four years because during that time, I started several, uh, two mobile computing companies, Palm and Handspring and they became successful and large, and they occupied my time. But everybody I worked with knew I really wanted to be doing uh, neuroscience research. Everybody knew this. Uh, My investors knew it. My employees knew it. It was like everyone knew this. This is what my goal was. And so I finally uh, extracted myself from the mobile computing space uh, about 15 years ago. And then the first thing I did was I started the Redwood Neuroscience Institute, which is now at Berkeley, And I ran that for three years. And then I started a company called Numenta, which I'm still at right now. And um, Numenta is like a private research lab. And we have a team of scientists and engineers, uh, primarily. And we focus on cortical theory. We're doing what um, I always wanted to do. And the whole period in mobile computing, which I'm reasonably well known for, that to me was like an actor who really wanted to act was waiting tables. So I was doing mobile computing when I really wanted to get back into brain theory. And I used to describe it that way at the time, so it's not, it's not revisionist history here. Uh, but we've been doing it great, and we've been making some great progress. So I'm really excited to talk about some of the progress we've made in understanding how the neocortex works.
0: Yeah, and I'm going to give you plenty of time, but the reason that I'm asking you about this is because I have a lot of listeners with all kinds of backgrounds who are discovering their passion for neuroscience, and they think that maybe they can't follow it because they've already taken some other path. And so I think your story could inspire people that might share the sidetracks. And I'm really curious, given that I've interviewed guys from the Allen Brain Institute a couple of times, and I realize that was founded by Paul Allen from Microsoft, but I don't know much about Allen's story and whether you share anything in common other than starting things that were going to explore the brain? Uh,
1: I think, uh, I would think this is a fair characterization that I'm a practicing neuroscientist. I'm extremely, uh, I would think, people would say I'm extremely knowledgeable about this field and I'm doing active research. I don't think Paul Allen is doing that. I think he's very interested in many things, including uh, brain theory, and he has basically used his resources, financial resources to create an institute But I don't think he is practicing. And uh, and, and on the other hand, I have a very small group here. It's not a large group like the Allen Institute, but I'm hands-on and and doing actual research. So I'm not sure there's a lot of parallels there. And then there are many people who are very interested in how the brain works. And we come at it from different directions and we use our resources as best we can.
0: Okay, so you alluded to this a minute ago, but as I understand and I remember reading in your book on intelligence, which actually inspired the very first episode of this show many years ago, over 10 years ago, that your interest is in, in the cortex of the brain and trying to, to model it. Is that basically the... Well,
1: we, it's really trying to understand how it works. And, and just, just to remind, and I'll tell you what that means to understand how it works. From my perspective, but just to remind your listeners that the neocortex uh, in a human brain is somewhere between 70 and 75 percent of the volume of the human brain, and it's uh, only mammals have a neocortex, a proper neocortex, and it, of course, it's the organ that we most associate with all of our intelligence uh, functions. So. Uh, language, my neocortex is generating the language right now uh, that I'm speaking, and you and your listeners, neocortex is interpreting that, and high-level vision and planning and so on, all this stuff occurs in the neocortex. So it is, uh, if you're interested in intelligence, it is the organ to study. Uh, It can't be understood completely on its own, but a lot of it can be. And so uh, that's the area of my focus. And I think there are many, many people in neuroscience who ultimately think that that's certainly a very, very, one of the most important goals of neuroscience is to understand uh, the neocortex because it's so associated with uh, us as humans and our, and our intelligence and our ability to, to even talk about these problems. So that is my focus, and uh, it includes other regions, too. Uh, we'll talk a minute Go. We have to understand many other parts of the brain to understand the neocortex, specifically the thalamus and then some the hippocampus and the, uh, the cortex. These things all interact with it, but our focus is primarily on the neocortex. And I should remind people that one of the most amazing things about the neocortex, even though it's so big, if you could take it out of your head, it would literally be a, a sheet about 2.5 millimeters thick, and about the size of a large dinner napkin. So it's this large sheet. And in everywhere you look in that sheet, there's, there's regions that do different things. There's regions for vision and hearing and touch and language and planning. But everywhere you look, there's this detailed mic- circuitry. And that circuitry is remarkably the same everywhere. It's incredible. In fact, it's remarkably the same as a mouse neocortex and a, and a cat neocortex. And so there's what they call a canonical circuitry. There's this circuitry that it seems to exist everywhere and for all these different functions, for all these different animals that seems to be repeated over and over again. So this is it's, to understand the neocortex, it's not like you have to understand each part separately. If you can understand what the core circuitry does anywhere, you basically can understand the whole thing so it's very enticing from that point of view, as uh, can we understand this complex circuitry that exists literally in just two and a half millimeters of thickness of neural tissue, and that's what I want to talk about today because I think we've made some significant progress in understanding that
0: as I was reading your new paper and also a couple of the papers from last year, it reminded me of some of the key ideas from on intelligence, which I admit i haven't read in many years. but as I read your papers, I remembered that two of the ideas that seemed to be important were the role of prediction and the gap between how real neurons work and artificial intelligence approaches. And those two ideas came back to me as I was reading your
1: papers.
0: Do you feel that that is a fair representation of some of what's going
1: on? Absolutely. <laughs> it's actually quite good that you narrowed it on those two items because those would be the two key ones, I would say. Let me talk about prediction. I had this insight when I was a graduate student back in the 80s, actually, about the neocortex, your brain, is making these predictions continuously about everything, and you're not aware of them. They're not conscious predictions, but your brain is predicting what it's going to feel when it touches things. It predicts what it's going to see when you move your eyes. It's going to predict what I'm going to say as I speak to you, and if this prediction is occurring at a very low level. Then the inputs coming into the brain are being predicted. They're saying, okay, the brain has a model of the world, and I wrote, that was the genesis of the book on intelligence. It was about the brain as a prediction machine. What's really um, changed is that when I wrote that book, I made the argument that understanding how the brain makes predictions is going to be key to understanding how it all works. What's happened in the last 10 years is we've made a detailed progress about exactly how those predictions are made. And so we sort of filled in the neural machinery understanding this as we went along. We first asked how... Can the brain make predictions about naturally occurring changes in the world? So if someone is listening to this right now, they're not moving and the patterns coming out on the ears are changing. So that's that's like listening to a melody. How do you predict the next note in a melody or what word I'm going to say and things like that? And that's one type of prediction. The other type of prediction is that when the inputs to the brain change because you yourself are moving. And this is, is really the most the reason that, that the inputs of the brain change and the most the reason the brain is making predictions is that your eyes are constantly moving. You're moving them. Your brain is moving them or you're touching things by moving your hand over them or you're walking forward and so on. And every time you move any part of your body, the inputs of the brain change and the brain has to make a prediction about those too. So there's these two classes of prediction. One is for naturally changing things in the world where all the bird flies by or you're hearing a song, and the other is because you are moving. And we attack those two problems, one after the other. And it turns out the same neural mechanism is used for both of them, but with a very interesting twist for the, for the one where you were moving. That idea, that prediction is important, was the foundation of all of our research. It is. Continually, we ask the question, how does the brain do this? Now, when it comes to the neuron, I had this insight many years ago as well, that Neurons are very complex. Uh, this is not my insight, but th- we know that neurons are quite complex. They have many thousands of synapses, the uh, connections between cells. These connections are on the dendrites, which are complex processing elements themselves. And so um, it's a, a neuron is a complex thing. And almost all neural network models still today have a very, very simplistic and unrealistic idea or model of what a neuron is. They have no explanation for all the thousands of synapses. They have no explanation for why they're distributed the way they are. There's no overall theory about how neurons really function in current neural network models. That is used in like machine learning and things like that. There are, of course, neuroscientists who who model neurons at a very detailed level. But one of the papers we published last year, the one that's called uh, Why Neurons Have Thousands of Synapses, a Theory of Sequence Memory in the Neocortex." We introduced a theory about why neurons look the way they do and I can explain that if you want. Uh, it's caught the attention of a few researchers who are really excited about it and so we're starting to do some collaborations about it because it makes some very interesting predictions. So the, the way to think about this is most people think, oh, okay, a neuron has these inputs called synapses and if you have enough of them active, then the, then the neuron generates a spike and then it projects to other neurons and that's of course true. But it's really only true for about ten percent of the synapses on a neuron, the ones that are closest to the cell body. So those are called proximal synapses and, and so when people think about a neuron, as simple neuron models, they think of it oh there's some some number of synapses near the cell body and you add up the input makes the cell fire. But ninety over 90% of the synapses are further away from the cell body. And if you activate them, they don't really do much. <laughs> they don't, they're not strong enough to make the cell become active and generate a spike. Well, what the researchers have found out, and it's really fascinating, is that the actual where the synapses are out on the dendrites, so you can imagine they're like a tree branches, if you activate a small number of them, meaning some 15 or 20 of the synapses, receive an input at the same time, and those synapses are close together, so they have to be near each other, very close. So they receive an input close in time, and they're also close next to each other on the dendrite, that the dendrite will generate its own spike, a different type of spike called a dendritic spike. Most of them are, are, are called NMDA spikes due to the chemicals involved, and That dendritic spike will travel to the cell body, but it too is not strong enough to make the cell fire. But what it does is it it raises the interior voltage of the cell significantly. So it's like priming the cell to become active. It says, I'm not going to make you active, but you're going to be ready. You're going to be primed to be active. And what happens is in our theory that's in that paper is that when A cell is in this state, it's in a predictive state. It's saying, I think I'm likely to become active soon. I've seen a pattern out there that is usually predictive of me becoming active. And I'm going to be slightly depolarized, meaning I'm going to be more likely to fire than other cells nearby. And what happens now is if an input comes in onto the the proximal synapses, the ones that actually make the cells fire, I might have several cells that all have the same, they all respond to the same proximal input. They all have the same basic response properties. But one of them will be depolarized. One of them will be, its voltage will be raised internally. And that cell will fire first. It beats out the other. So I might have 10 cells that all respond to the same stimulus in the world. But one of them is going to be primed. One of them is going to be saying, ah, I'm expecting to become active. And that one gets out its spike a little bit quicker and shuts down the other ones. And so you end up with what happens here is you you can take an input, something like a visual line or sound or a tactile touch on your finger, and it turns it into a very unique pattern in the brain that's related to the context in which it occurs. So if I was listening to a note in a melody, instead of just representing the note in the, in the brain, I would represent the note in the context of the previous notes. And so I'd have a unique representation of this note or this interval in the context of a song. Anyway, so this neuron model accounts for the thousands of synapses. We did the math behind it explaining how an individual neuron can, can recognize hundreds of unique patterns. It, they're very precise uh, things. People don't realize that, that neurons are Learn, literally learned to recognize hundreds of unique patterns, and any one of those patterns could be predictive for the cell, and the cell says, "Ah, that's a pattern that might indicate I'm going to become active next, and we, we illustrated the process by which how these inputs are modified in this way and why the neurons look like this, and we showed how you can, that these depolarized states are really the predictive states of neurons, and this is why you're not aware of them, because it's an internal state to the neuron. It's not something you can perceive. It's an internal thing, but... We showed also that if the input comes in that wasn't expected, then the whole system can recognize that. And so we notice when things are wrong, but we don't notice our predictions when they're right, at least not most of them.
0: So in that paper, you talked a good bit about, you had a section on testable predictions, and I'm just curious whether or not any of those testable predictions have been able to be tested
1: yet. Well, it's interesting because some of these things can be uh, tested actually by just going through the literature. I mean, they're literally like uh, you can go back and find, oh, someone actually saw this. But the answer to your question is yes, some of these have been tested. We've been in collaborations with several labs who are excited about this theory. And there are people who have already contacted us saying, I've seen these results I didn't have an explanation for them, but now I do. And we have other people who are starting, hopefully starting the beginning of the year, next year, are going to be designing experiments uh, specifically to test these. So we've, we've had collaborations where people went back through old experiments and said, yes, I, click, I can see some of these. And, and then others where people said, I'm going to go further and test these. So it is exciting. I'm, it, there are almost no other theories about why neurons look like this at a, at a system level. Like we can explain what the neurons are doing, but we can also explain how 10,000 neurons work together to do something useful uh, using this. And so it's, it's generated a reasonable amount of interest.
0: There was a couple of other ideas in, in the 2016 papers that I thought we should touch on before we talk about your new paper. The ideas of sparseness of representation, could you explain what that is and why it's important?
1: It is actually the key ingredient holding all this together, Um, but it is a kind of a conceptual idea and and some people have trouble with it, but I'll do my best. When we say sparse, what we're meaning is that if you look in the brain and you look at all the neurons and there's billions of neurons in the neocortex, at any point in time, relatively few of them are active, anywhere between less than 1% to a few percent, and the vast majority are, are relatively inactive. Uh, at any point in time. So that's what the term sparse means. It's a sparse activation. And, and the question is, why is it like that? That's very different, by the way, than computers. Computers use what we would call a dense representation, meaning if I gave you a, a computer word, like 32 bits, you could have one that's all ones or half ones or quarter ones or three quarter ones, you know, ones and zeros. But in the brain, it's always sparse. And there's some really, really interesting properties, amazing properties that come out of this. I'll, I'll try to touch on a few, but it, 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 it's a fascinating topic, but it's hard to get really into. First of all, you should realize if I have just a few thousand neurons, and there's, I have, let's say, I have five thousand neurons and I say, two percent are active, so that would be a hundred neurons. And the rest are inactive. Well, you can say, how many different ways can I activate a hundred neurons out of five thousand? And it turns out, it's incredibly large number. It's almost – it's more than, than atoms in the universe. So practically speaking, it's infinite. So you can basically represent that scheme. Uh, this is just a property of having large number of bits, a few thousand bits or 2,000, several thousand neurons, there's unlimited number of things you can represent. Now, here's the next thing. that's very interesting. If I were to just randomly choose 100 neurons out of these 5,000, and then I randomly choose another 100 neurons, and then I randomly choose another 100 neurons, and I do this all day long, almost none of the patterns I would choose would overlap much with any of the other patterns. Like almost all the patterns, yes, you could have, theoretically, you could have two patterns that overlap by 99 neurons, but it's almost impossible. And what happens is you can pick patterns out of the 100 you know, neurons at a time, and they'll almost all be what we might say orthogonal. They almost all overlap very little. That is, you'd only have one or two neurons in common out of the 100, and all the others would be unique. And so this means I can choose patterns in this space all day long and they'll all be very distinguishable. They'll all be very unique. I don't have to, I'm I'm not going to worry about them looking similar. Uh, This is a very interesting property. And then then this tells us if I want to recognize one of these patterns. So imagine I I had a neuron and and this neuron wants to recognize the pattern of active cells. Well, one way to recognize the pattern of active cells is to form connections to all hundred active neurons. So there's 100 out of 5,000, I would form a connection to all 100. And if I see those 100, I'd say my pattern is active. Well, the math works out that you don't have to connect to hardly any. You can connect to maybe 10. <laughs> and if you find – randomly choose 10 of the 100 neurons or 15 or something like that. And if uh, – no matter how you choose them, if you see those 15 or those 10 active, you can almost be guaranteed that you found the pattern of 100. That is, it's, it's going to be – it's very robust. And so when we think about neurons, if I'm a neuron and I have thousands of synapses, and as a moment ago, I said, I, I might only need 15 to be active at the same time to make the, the dendritic spike I talked about. Well, I'm a neuron. I might be looking at a population of 50,000 cells someplace else or 10,000 cells nearby. But if I want to recognize a pattern of activity in those cells, I only need to connect to 10, 15 of them, and I can be guaranteed that I'm going to detect the larger pattern. So, a neuron can recognize uh, hundreds of unique patterns in thousands of cells nearby and do so with a very small number of synapses, uh, which is surprising. But it's true and the math works out and it's, uh, it's very interesting.
0: Would you explain the idea of the word robust you used a minute ago because it relates to this? I, I mean, you just described it, but would you explicitly explain it?
1: Sure. Um, Robust could be, you can view it in various ways. One would be that, let's say there was some noise injected into the system. So the neurons didn't, they weren't very reliable and neurons aren't very reliable. So let's say 5% of the times neurons don't work. They just say 5% of the time, they just don't fire when they're supposed to fire. The system will work just fine because I'm looking at um, 15 active cells maybe. And if 5% of them, a couple of them don't fire, it makes no difference. It just the system continues to work. And so it's robust to noise. It's also robust to failure or decay. So, for example, if, if 5% of the neurons died and just never worked again, the system would still work, unlike a computer, but very much like brains, because we are talking about brains. <laughs> it is the point. The point is that brains are incredibly tolerant to noise and dying cells and things that don't work, and, you know. Uh, the system is incredible. We'll be saying robust. It, it almost works, almost exactly. It can't be exactly as good when those things happen, but it's almost as good. You could you could almost not detect it. And so, in the paper we did in 2016, we did a lot of um, simulations to show this, to show how incredibly robust um, the system is uh, to noise and trauma and death and you know, <laughs> you know, and the system just keeps working. At some point. If enough cells die, then the system starts falling apart. But you know, with you, we as humans—this is a fact—that you know, after you turn 22 or something like that, your brain shrinks. <laughs> it starts, in, and there's cell death going on, and things are not quite as good as they used to be. But we we survive pretty well up until the point where you have really massive decay of some sort. Then things start falling apart. But you know, you can handle a lot of problems and not even notice it. So uh, this is great for biological systems, of course, and um, it's great for, that our brains are built this way, but all of this comes about from the sparsity of activations, and it's a, it's a really cool way of computing. It's a very, very different way than computers do it. Is there
0: anything else you think we need before we start talking about the new paper?
1: Um, i only mentioned that uh, since you brought up the old paper, the second part of the title was the theory of sequence memory. And so that paper did detail a very biologically Precise, accurate mechanism by which, like, a layer of cells in the neocortex could learn sequences. And the way it did that is that it, the, the cells connected to other cells nearby. And that was because the, the other cells nearby were a context or the prior state. And so we could learn, like, oh, given this state, I can now predict the next state. And given that state, I can predict the next state. And given that state, I can predict the next state. So we showed how a, a layer of neurons can make a prediction about the next input in a robust, accurate way based on just connecting to other neurons nearby. And we took that same mechanism. We think this is going on in several of the layers in the neocortex. We took that exact same mechanism, and then we applied it to the second problem I mentioned earlier, which is how do we make predictions when we move? So the only thing I wanted to say here is that the new paper starts with where we left off in the old paper and then adds to it and says, hey, that same mechanism can work for learning how to predict things when you move. What we call sensory motor inference. So that would be the, just the connection between those two.
0: I love challenging myself in new waves and broadening my perspective. One of my favorite ways to do this is with the Great Courses Plus. There's unlimited access to thousands of lectures on everything from science, history, language, even playing chess, all presented by award winning professors. You can watch the Great Courses Plus from any TV, laptop, tablet, or smartphone. And now you can stream the audio too if you use the Great Courses Plus app. So you can listen along as you go ahead with your day with the flexibility to switch back to video whenever you want. I've tested this and it works really well. This month I'm recommending. A wonderful course called Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, Techniques for Retraining Your Brain with Dr. Jason Satterfield. What I like about this particular course is that it gives you a practical toolbox for working on lots of the problems that we all face in our day-to-day life. I know you're going to love The Great Courses Plus just as much as I do. You can sign up today and get a free month of unlimited access to watch all of the videos. All you have to do is use my special URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash ginger. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash ginger. the new paper's called A Theory of How Columns in the Neocortex Enable Learning the Structure of the World. Want to give us an overview?
1: Yeah, sure. Funny, that wasn't our first choice for the title, but in the review process, that was the the last point we, we seeded on. We wanted to parallel the first paper, which was starting with a question, uh, but for this time they didn't want us to do that. So uh, the new paper, basically, I already said what it's about. It's about how do we make predictions when we move. So imagine you're touching something and you move your fingers over it and you, your brain is predicting what it's going to feel if it's a familiar object. And, as, and we also believe that when your eyes are moving, it, they're predicting this evidence that this is true, that your, your brain is predicting what it's going to see. The key insight. There's a lot of things in this new paper that are, uh, I think, are important. But the, there was one key discovery, uh, which I want to start off with, which I think is going to unravel many of the mysteries of the neocortex. So let's. I talked earlier about in the neocortex, there's this common circuitry that looks canonical circuitry. Sometimes I call it. You see it everywhere, and me just described that a bit. In the two and a half millimeter thickness of the cortex, there are about two dozen different cell types. Uh, Sometimes people say there's six layers, but that's not really true. There's really about two dozen different cell types, maybe more that are unique and have different connections. And so there's a lot more than, there's all these different cells that are doing things. They tend to be in this laminar or layered form. So some are in the top of the two and a half milliliters, some are in the middle, some in the bottom. And there's all this very complicated circuitry that has been um, detailed over decades of very difficult research, where people have been teasing about how these cells are connected, how these layers are connected, and which connections go this way, and which connections go that way. So there's this tremendous literature on um, the circuitry of the neocortex, but there's very, very little theoretical understanding what's going on. And most models are extremely simplistic. They say, oh, the input comes into this region of the cortex or this area of the cortex, and it extracts a feature and then it sends that feature to another region. And then that region builds more features and extracts it to another region. And it's sort of like, well, why do you have, in a square millimeter of neocortex, you have 100,000 neurons of 25 different cell types doing all this complicated processing. But what is it? No one really knows. And most of the neurons are sort of completely opaque. Why are these neurons here? What are we know where they're connected, but we don't know what they are. We um, discovered, I, I say that carefully because it's more like we deduced. (laughs) We didn't go and probe and find these neurons. We figured something out, and then we found evidence for it. We discovered that there's a second input to each cortical region, each cortical column, um, the column being like a millimeter square or half a millimeter square for the cortex. We think of the input in the primary sensory regions as coming directly from the eyes or from the ears or from the skin. So um, these sensors go into these primary sensory regions in the neocortex, cortex, and then they're processed. So that's the primary input. Everybody knows about that. But there's another signal that's generated in the cortex, which we are speculating in this new paper. And that other signal is surprising. And I'll, I'll try to describe what it is. It's, it's a location. It's a representation, representation of location. What do I mean by that? Imagine um, I'm looking at a cup. I have a, a coffee cup in front of me right now. There we go. I just put it on the table. And um, I can see it. And if, one, if my eyes are looking at it, um, there's an image on my retina. And the retina passes uh, that image in, in a very distorted form to the, to the brain, to the, real, the visual cortex. And then we know that it extracts features like, oh, there's an edge and there's another edge or there's a curve or something like that. What we're saying is that not only do we know that there's an edge, but the, every cortical column or every region it's determining where that edge is relative to the object. It's saying that is an edge in a reference frame centered on the object itself. It's, it's, like it's adding like a 3D element to it. It's saying not only is a feature that I'm detecting, but I know where that feature is on the object that is being sensed. And that, that location is independent of where the coffee cup is relative to me. That is, if I move the coffee cup further away from me or move it closer to me, the edge of the coffee cup... It's still the edge of the coffee cup. The location of the handle does not change.
0: So the location is relative to the object, not relative to me or you.
1: That's right. And that's the term neuroscientists use for this is is sometimes called an allocentric location, meaning allo meaning other. So it's the location-centric to something else. I'm sure you know this, and many of your your listeners will know this too, that there's other places in the brain where they've discovered location signals like this. And these are things called uh, place cells and grid cells. These are very famous, and the people discovered them got Nobel Prizes and so on. And what they do is they represent where you and I are relative to, say, a room or to some environment. So like when I'm sitting in this room I'm in right now, there are cells that are, that are encoding where I am right now. And if I move a little further over to the next seat, um, those cells will update and say, oh, you're in a new location. These things have been known for decades and um, the, the grid cells are in the antilinal uh, the cortex and the play cells are in the hippocampus and they've been found in other parts of the brain. What we're proposing is something very similar is going on. But instead of locating my body relative to a room, which is what grid cells do, we're locating the sensory organs relative to the object that's being sensed. So if I were touching my coffee cup with my finger the tip of the finger is getting a sensation, but the sensory cortex, the, the somatosensory cortex or the, the touch cortex, it knows both what it's feeling and where it is in the world. And as soon as it, you add this location signal, then all kinds of things make sense and all kinds of mysteries get resolved. And all of a sudden we can understand what all these layers are doing. And why and it tells us that the cortex, even a single column of the cortex, is much more powerful than people thought. It allows um, uh, even a small section of the cortex to model complete objects and know the entire structure of objects. So in the paper, we developed this idea, and we talk about some of the networks and how they work and how you learn the structure of objects by movement.
0: Right, and it was fascinating the way you showed that even by modeling just one single column the network could recognize the object and then you had three columns and the key difference was more columns meant you could recognize the object faster.
1: Yes which is something we do too. Um, The theory says that to learn a new thing whether you're touching it or looking at it you have to move your sensors that you can't learn something new without moving your eyes over it or walking around it or touching it in multiple locations
0: which is the whole philosophy of embodied cognition.
1: Right. But what is, what we're saying is happening when you're doing that that there are thousands and thousands of these columns and they're all basically learning the models of the object. That is, there there are many, many models of the coffee cup in my primary century cortex. Well, we have to be careful because there's some limits to what you can learn in each region, but the basic idea is that there are many, many models of the same thing being learned in each neighboring column. So I have to move over the object to train the system. But once I've trained the system, um, now I can show you an image and you don't even have time to move your eyes and you can recognize the image. Or, Or I can hold the coffee cup in my hand And I perceive the entire coffee cup, even though I'm only touching parts of it. But my perception is the whole thing is there, which is a fascinating thing to think about. You know, you're only touching parts of it, but you don't feel these funny sensations on your skin. You perceive the coffee cup. So what's going on is these individual columns, even though at any point in time, they can only sense a part of the object. So they don't know enough. My one finger, my index finger, is touching the the rim of this coffee cup right now. On its own, that's not enough to know that it's a coffee cup. But the other fingers are touching other areas, and and what they do, they vote. Um, They're essentially sending these uh, these horizontal connections in the cortical regions, which are well-documented, those are like votes. It's like one column is saying, well, I'm feeling this, this edge here, but I'm not sure exactly what it is. It could be this, or this, or this. And the other guy says, I'm feeling this bump over here. I'm not sure what it could be. It could be this, or this, or this. And they quickly settle on, within a matter of tens of milliseconds, they quickly settle on the only answer that makes sense for all of them. And so this is why you can do this flash inference. I can just flash an image in front of you, and you can say, oh, I know what that is. It could be very, very short brief presentation, and it's why you you can perceive things you know you, you have this perception of entire objects, even though you're only touching parts of it. So it explains a lot of things like that, but but yes, it, it totally flips around the way we think about the neocortex. Today's theory, what most people think about it is is like each region in the cortex is is extracting some small feature, and it sends it to the next region, which extracts bigger features, and which sends it to the next region, extracts bigger features. And somewhere, somewhere up in the hierarchy of neocortical regions, you recognize the coffee cup.
0: But that doesn't make sense because it doesn't fit. I mean, why are all those feedback signals existing? That
1: doesn't fit. It doesn't, it, none of this fits, Ginger. It's, it's, it's a it kind of fits, but it doesn't fit. It's, it's very, look, almost all neuroscientists will tell you that they don't really understand this. It's not there's something wrong, but I believe that once you understand that each column is determining this location, which is a tricky thing to do, it's not easy to do this. It's tricky. And a lot of the neural machinery in the brain is dedicated to doing this, we believe. But once you've done that, now, It flips everything around and you start thinking about the brain completely differently. You start thinking about regions differently. You start thinking about columns differently. You start thinking about the hierarchy differently. And it kind of comes together in like, oh my gosh, that's what's going on. Uh, It's not what we thought. But you're right. it, It didn't really make sense before, but there were no better ideas. So, you know, you got to go with which, you know, until you know the answer, it's, it's, not, it's not easy. Well,
0: I assume that you, you know the work of Olaf Sporns, even though he's working in a different area than you. I've interviewed him several times. And one of the things that he keeps saying is that we need theories. You know, we can't just keep acquiring more and more neuroscientific facts without theories. And that's why we need people like you who want to do the theory. I mean, because it doesn't seem like theory is what attracts people to neuroscience. I mean, as a general rule.
1: That's a very interesting question. I mean, I I could talk a length about this (laughs) because, you know, the reason I, remember I told you I started as a graduate student at Berkeley? That was in 86. I started in January of 86. And after two years, I left. And the reason I left was because I was told and it became obvious to me this was true, that you couldn't be a theorist. That that was not acceptable. It was not considered proper science and for neuroscientists. And I have speculations of why this, how this came about and the history behind this. It's a fascinating question. And many, many people had recognized this problem. When I started the Redwood Neuroscience Institute, I had a gentleman on our board who was very well connected in Washington, D.C., His name was Steve Zornetzer. He used to run the Office of Naval Research, and he was a neuroscientist. So we went and took a trip to Washington, D.C., and we visited the NIH and the NSF and DARPA. Those are the three government agencies that were funding neuroscience research. And it was fascinating. When I went to the NIH, which is where the bulk of the funding for neuroscience research comes from, and I met with about 20 or 30 of the program directors there. And I explained what I was doing. I said, I'm creating this new institute. It's a theory institute. Uh, We're not going to do experimental work. We're going to do this pure theory. We're going to partner with experimentalists. And they were like, This is great. This is what we need. We really need this. This, So we're so excited. And and I said, Look, I'm not even coming asking for funding. I'm just letting you know, and maybe we can work together. And then they said, said, We're so glad you're doing this because. We can't do it. I said, what do you mean you can't do it? Oh, Then they started telling me that you can't believe if anyone proposes a theory, then someone else shoots it down, and everything has to be by unanimous consent, and so any kind of new theoretical ideas never get funded, and we can't do anything about it, and they were on and on and on about this. Um, and so um, it was a real eye-opener for me. Now things have changed. It's better now. It's still not great, but it's definitely better now. There are there are a lot of people trying to do theory, and it's more accepted. And there are theory we are publishing theory articles. But this is uh, even even 15 years ago that was uh, really kind of considered uh, out of the norm. But uh, I think it's true. I mean, it, it, neuroscience is a is a field with more data than theory, and it needs more theory. I view that as an opportunity. It, it's a there's an opportunity to come in and make a big difference. So what's next? Given these insights we've had and that are described in the paper that just came out in Frontiers, I should mention, by the way, you can find these papers uh, and links to them on in videos and explanations from and so on on our company's website. Uh, com slash papers. We see this as a tremendous opportunity to just make rapid progress on understanding what all the layers in the neocortex are doing. Or it was like we're coming out of the woods. It was like almost nothing was understood, and now we're starting to understand a lot. And we have a long way to go, but. I can tell you some of the kind of problems we're working on, but it's all in the context of like, okay, now we can start explaining what all these other cell types are doing and and why the connections look the way they are. So one of the big questions is, is actually how exactly is this location signal generated? How does a patch in V1, the primary visual cortex, or a patch in S1, the primary centric cortex, how does that know where it is on some object in the world? That's a really weird question. And how would it know that? We think we know the answer to that question, but we're working through the details and we have to, in our work, we want to make sure it matches to the biology. We don't want to just come up with a reticle. It's got to really be in the biology. And one of the big clues was, fortunately, all that work that was done in grid cells over the last several decades, because grid cells are amazing these are the cells in the entorhinal cortex that tell you where you are in a room. And they have to solve some incredibly difficult problems. And we, and we kind of know, not we, but the general community knows how they solve those problems. So we think the same mechanisms, the clever mechanisms that evolved to do this in, the, in grid cells are being used in, in the neocortex. And so we're trying to map those circuitry onto the uh, what are called the infragranular layers, the lower layers of the neocortex, layer five and six, where we think this is occurring. Uh, so that's one area of research. Another area of research, which is fascinating too, I said earlier that a, a single column, and you pointed this out, Ginger, that a single column can can basically learn entire objects we've shown that even a single you know, column of you know, maybe half a millimeter square of cortex can learn hundreds of complex objects. Well, it's not just learning the shape of objects. We also learn how objects behave. So I have a, a pen in front of me, and the pen has a, a clip on it, and that clip bends up and down. And I know that, and I can push on it, and it cups it down, and it has a cap that comes on and off. And I know how it behaves when I act upon it. That knowledge of how objects behave has to be stored with the objects themselves. So it's, it's like a pen is not just this thing that looks like this, and over here, someplace in the brain, I, somewhere else in the brain, I'm, I know what it does. No, I know what a, the pen does because the representation of the pen incorporates that. And so we believe that even single columns in the cortex are, will encode all the behaviors that are associated with objects. And this is a fascinating idea, and there's a lot of evidence that suggests it's true. And so we have, we're just beginning to think about how actually that is done. Uh, how, could the, how could we encode that in the same column that's encoding where the, the, the definition of the shape and the, and the morphology of an object is? So those are two big areas for us. Another big area is, and this is a little bit harder to describe, we didn't mention this in the paper, but we are able to share learning between our senses. I can learn an object by touching it. And then I could I could say here's four gender, here's four objects. I want you to reach in a box and feel them and, and, and learn what they feel like. And then I could show you those four objects later and not let you touch them, and you'd be able to identify which was which. Now, how does that happen? <laughs> well, that is something that's going on uh, between the shared sort of learning between different regions of the cortex. And we have a weird term we use for that called disjoint pooling, and it's hard to describe. But, but this idea that you can learn with one set of sensors and then recognize with another one actually turns out to be a very tricky and difficult problem. And we're working on a solution to that too. So those are, those are three areas that uh, I consider big problems that we're, we're currently occupied with, the determining the location signal, understanding behaviors of objects and how they react, and then um, how do we learn across modalities.
0: Well, Jeff, I have a question that I've taken to asking almost all of my guests, and that is, give advice
1: for students? Well, gosh, it's such a hard question to answer. There's several ways you can answer that question. First of all, I think it's important to get as broad a neuroscience background as you can because if you start doing research right away and you work in someone's lab, you're just going to be so focused on one thing that you will not have a bigger picture. I was fortunate in my life that when I first got interested in this, I actually didn't start doing research right away. I, I avoided it because I didn't want to be an experimentalist. and So I ended up spending two years basically reading everything. I read uh, Kendall's big book principles of neuroscience, I read that twice, cover to cover, and it was like, you've got this background because I find so often that neuroscientists don't know about other stuff. They don't know other things about the brain. They're just so focused, and having that broad background, that's one piece of advice. Get that broad background. I don't care how you do it, but just you know, go to classes, read books, <laughs> and learn a lot of stuff, study other animals. The other piece of advice is, and this would be true to almost anybody in in any kind of career, you're going to work for somebody in their lab. So she or he is doing something. You're going to be spending a lot of time as a graduate student and a postdoc working in someone else's lab. And pick carefully. And uh, you want to pick carefully. First of all, pick someone who's really going to be interested in teaching you and advancing your career, not theirs. And second, pick a field That's an open field, that one where it looks like no one knows what they're doing. Yeah, where they
0: don't think they'll have all the answers already.
1: Exactly, where people say, you know, because so often what you hear is like, you don't want to study that because no one knows anything about it, (laughs) but but that's that's the beauty of it, right? You know, because you can spend a lot of time and a lot of neuroscientists do this where you're working on refinements, and there's nothing wrong about this, refinements of ideas and refinements of ideas, but it's exciting to work on, you know, greenfield areas where There's things that people haven't done, and people don't know what's going on. And there's lots of that in neuroscience. People just say it's risky because you might not make progress. But that's where, you know, greatness comes from. You, You go and attack problems that people didn't think were solvable. And that's the only way to really make a big difference.
0: Absolutely. Well, is there anything else you'd like to share that we've missed or is coming up for you?
1: I'm so happy to speak to you, Ginger, because I know you reach a, a, a good audience in an educational audience. I really, I'm not doing this from a self-centered point of view. I really think we're making some significant progress in neocortical theory. And I, if you're interested in that, I would suggest reading the two papers you mentioned and some of the other ones. If nothing else, there's some really interesting ideas in there. Uh, I think they're right, but you know, even so, some of them are wrong. And there's some. There are very few places you can read about ideas about the neocortex that really kind of deal with large-scale theoretical ideas and. And I'd love to have feedback and people discussing these ideas and saying what's right about them and what's wrong about them. um, I'm I'm trying to elevate the conversation too in the general neuroscience community to discuss more theoretical ideas like this.
0: Well, I'm glad we were able to talk. I do have a question that's going to reveal my ignorance. I just very recently became aware of the idea of of deep learning, and you made a reference in the paper to the difference between the HTM approach and deep learning, and I was wondering, is it just because deep learning uses the classical artificial intelligence model of neurons, or is there something else that separates the approaches?
1: So um, deep learning is a model, it's a hierarchical processing model, which was inspired by neuroscience. I mean, uh, they're using artificial neurons in a hierarchy arrangement, and it's been extremely successful uh, doing certain things in the AI world these days. So it's a very hot topic right now and uh, all these engineers, in fact, a lot of neuroscientists are leaving neuroscientists to go study, you know, because there's more money there. <laughs> um, so there's two things I can say about it. First of all, it's it's extremely successful, so good. We don't want to take anything away from that for doing the things it does. It is not a biological model, it is very, very far from a biological model. Not only do the neurons are simplistic, they're completely wrong they have negative and positive synapses, they rely on very precise synaptic weights. They They don't have any of these dendritic processing. There's no complexity that we see in the brain. It's, it's, it's a very, very uh, overly simplistic um, interpretation. Um, so it doesn't really inform us much. And the way they train is biologically impossible. And they don't work like brains. They, when they get to train a deep learning network, you have to train it on millions of images. And, and, and humans, we don't do that. I can pick something up and look at it for a few seconds and I get it. So they're really very different. Um, so they don't really inform neuroscience. And neuroscience is not today not informing them. So that's one issue. The other issue is they're starting to find ex- real limits to them. That there are some fundamental problems with them that and and I don't have to say this because the leaders of deep learning are saying this themselves. Jeff Hinton who is one of the founders of this whole field has been saying lately we have to start over from scratch. <laughs> we have people like uh, Demis Hassabis who is uh, the founder of Deep Minds the big Google research group now. And he too is saying, you know, we're reaching our limits. We have to go look at the brain. The brain is going to tell us how to do these things. So that community is starting to realize that they need more inspiration from the brain because they're running up against limits. It's not a, it's not what they're doing is not a theory of intelligence. It's not built on a theory of intelligence. It's a clever pattern recognition technique, but it's not deep. So I think these two fields are going to come together. Um, uh, I'm, you know, and, and it's starting to happen. And I think the insights we've had have already started to influence that uh, that field. For example, we've been working with uh, this group over in Europe who are building this uh, neuromorphic hardware chips. These are chips to accelerate artificial neurons. And um, they had very simple neurons in the past, and now they're adding active dendrites. And so uh, this is, this is the, based, basically on, partly or largely on our work uh, in the paper that you, we wrote last year. And so there's this merging. People are starting to say, oh, yeah, we need these things. So I think this is going to happen. And I think people who are really interested in getting beyond the limits of today's AI technology, deep learning, um, will find our papers fascinating because they, I think they lay out a roadmap for how we're going to get there. Even if you don't emulate the brain, per se, this idea of this, this location signal we've been talking about, I am totally convinced that the future AI machines are going to be built on this principle. It's just, it's so important. It's so fundamental. They're going to be built on sparsity, which is, uh, you asked about earlier, and they're going to be built on neuron models that have this complexity we've talked about. So I'm very confident that's going to happen. And it's, I, I'm excited about it. I think this is a, a way for the engineering world of machine intelligence is going to be interacting and, and becoming an important part of uh, neuroscience and, and vice versa.
0: Well, I'm fascinated to see what's going to happen in the future, and I hope that we don't go nine years between interviews <laughs> next
1: time. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, you know, Gina, I was I, last year when our paper came out, I said this is something, Gina, might be really interested, but I wanted to wait to this year's paper because I, I really wanted to have something important to t- talk about with you, and um, and I feel we do, and, and I think the progress is going to be much faster. Uh, I think we're going to really enter an accelerated period of cortical theory right now. And um, uh, so we we shouldn't have to wait that long. (laughs) We'll talk again in a year. I'll send you our papers next year and we'll we'll see how how much progress we've made, okay?
0: That sounds like a plan. It was great to talk to Jeff Hawkins again. I hope you got a sense of his passion for neuroscience. Before I review a few key ideas, I want to mention that all the papers we talked about are freely available on the Numenta website, and I'm going to be putting links to these in the show notes at brainsciencepodcast.com. The main reason that I continue to follow the work That Hawkins is doing at Numenta is that his team is actually trying to build a model of cortical function that matches the brain's anatomy and physiology, which of course also means generating testable hypotheses. In 2016, they published a new model that incorporates the fact that not all synapses are identical. In particular, their function seems to change depending on where they are located on the dendrites. Only synapses on dendrites near the cell body can cause an action potential. But in this new model, Hawkins proposes that the other synapses prepare the cell to fire, which in a sense is a form of prediction. The other paper that they published in 2016 focused on how sparseness leads to robustness. As Hawkins explained, having a sparse representation reduces overlap, which means that the signal is robust even in the noisy environment of real neurons. Then this year, 2017, they expanded their model to represent a very simple column. This is a key step toward making the model realistic because we know that the real cortex has a columnar structure, but exactly how the columns work is not yet known. Hawkins proposes that the key information that is needed for a column to identify an object is positional, but the positional information is allocentric, which means it's based on the object itself, not on the person or animal doing the sensing. For example, if you are touching a coffee cup, the location of the handle relative to the cup helps you recognize what it is. The other key idea is that although a single column can theoretically recognize hundreds of objects, having additional columns allows recognition to occur more rapidly, just like you can recognize a coffee cup more quickly if you use several fingers compared to just one finger. These ideas are actually easier to visualize with the help of a video And I'm going to provide the link to this video in the show notes. In 2016, their model included active dendrites and demonstrated how this can allow a single neuron to learn and remember a large number of objects. The model also included the importance of sparse representations which improve robustness of learning and recognition in noisy environments in 2017 the model is now expanded to represent a simple column and demonstrate how object recognition could occur by combining feature recognition with a location signal this appears to be an important step toward recreating a model that is, that more accurately reflects cortical anatomy and function we did talk briefly about how Hawkins and Numenta's work differs from traditional AI approaches and from newer approaches such as deep learning. He emphasized again that the key difference is Numenta's commitment to a truly brain-based model. I'll talk some more about this next month when I share some highlights from this year's Society for Neuroscience meeting, which I attended in Washington, D.C. One of the talks I went to was by the founder of the Deep Mind Project. I want to start my closing announcements with some advice for new listeners. If you're like me, when you find a new show, you like to go back and listen to earlier episodes. Unfortunately, the current version of the Apple Podcast app makes this rather difficult. One easy way to get all the episodes of Brain Science is via the free Brain Science mobile app, which is available for iOS, Android, and Windows phones. You can access over 50 episodes free, and I will explain how to get all the episodes shortly. Last month, I promised to share some highlights from my trip to the Society for Neuroscience meeting in Washington, D.C. Obviously, I decided to air Jeff's interview instead. So next month, which will be our 11th annual review episode, I will include some highlights from Neuroscience 2017 into that review episode. I would also like to thank everyone who reached out to me at SFN and apologize to anyone that I didn't get to meet. I know there was at least one person whose email I could not seem to find once I got to DC and we never were able to find each other. On the other hand, I really want to thank Rebecca Resnick and her husband, Philip, for taking me to dinner at Busboys and Poets. We had a great meal, and I highly recommend the restaurant. I also want to mention Rebecca's book, A Family's First Guide to ADHD. Next, as I mentioned last month, I'm trying to plan a trip to Australia in 2018, and I've decided it would be fun to do this with a group of brain science fans. If you're interested, please write to me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. I'm not going to post this on the website because I really want to limit the group to regular listeners who actually take the time to listen all the way to the announcements at the end. The group will be limited to 20 people, so if you're interested, don't delay. Over the last few weeks, some premium subscribers have had problems accessing episode transcripts. This problem has been resolved, but it made me aware that quite a few people are confused about how to get these transcripts. If you're on the main Brain Science Podcast website and you're looking at show notes for a particular episode, you'll see a link that allows you to buy an individual transcript. Unfortunately, you can't get to the premium transcript on the main website because the premium content is hosted by Lipson.com. Premium subscribers have unlimited access to older episodes as well as access to all transcripts for only $5 a month. There are two ways to get this content. One is via the free Brain Science mobile app. And the second, if you're using your web browser, is to go to brainsciencepodcast.libsen.com. If you're on the Brain Science Podcast website, brainsciencepodcast.com then look for login buttons that will take you directly to the my lipson login page I want to thank everyone who helps support my work Brain Science is independently produced and it relies on your support The premium subscription is very easy and a great option for new listeners who want to access the episodes posted before the most recent 50 which is right now means those before 2013. However, there are also two other ways you can support the show. Patreon allows you to pick a monthly amount, and I do make episode transcripts available on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Doc Artemis. Another option is just to do a direct donation via PayPal or even by check. To learn about all these options, go to Brainscience Podcast dot com forward slash donations finally don't forget to check out our new sponsor the great courses plus dot com forward slash ginger but as always i want to remind you that even if you can't afford to support the show financially you can help by sharing it with others and don't forget to subscribe in itunes or in the apple podcast app even if you listen in a different app The reason for this is that it helps us um, to go up in the rankings and helps new listeners find the show. I'd really love to hear from you. You can write to me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. There's a Brain Science Podcast Facebook page. I'm Doc Artemis on Twitter, and you can leave audio feedback at speakpipe.com forward slash Doc Artemis. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back with you next month. Brain Science is copyright 2017 to Virginia Campbell, MD. You may copy this to share it with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com.